0: Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 2. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our new series in the book of Genesis. Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the river of that land is good. Delium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Our New Testament reading is Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. For the sake of our sermon in Genesis 2, really we need all of Revelation 21 and 22. We read these verses simply as an example, an anchor point to that broader passage. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they shall and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray, Our Father in heaven. we give you thanks for your word. We humbly acknowledge before you that all that we do on the Lord's day is a matter of depending upon receiving good things from you. None of this is something we control or manipulate, nothing we engineer and accomplish something by our own doing, whether it be through the work of the minister or each one of us gathered here. We humbly acknowledge that for this moment of worship in particular, as we come to your word that we need this to be your, a matter of your presence, your work, your free and gracious acting among us. And so we pray for the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit that we might hear and receive your word by faith. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to encourage us to begin our time in God's word this morning, our time in Genesis chapter 2, remembering the psalm we just sang, Psalm 106. That psalm told the history of God's people as a matter of, on the one hand, God's constant grace and faithfulness, that's how it began, that's how it ended. But woven throughout that story, the history of God's people as being constantly tempted by idolatry. I hope you were struck in the midst of singing it, the contrast of it. Singing of all that God had done, what they had seen God do, and then the ease with which God's people then turned to worshiping the things of this creation. We sing of it, we're troubled by it. I hope you're also moved by the beauty of God's constant grace in in drawing his people back to himself. Turning them back to him. Well, Congregation of Christ, as God's assembled church this morning, we live in that very same story. That story we sang of in Psalm 106 is your story right now. You have known the grace of God. You have seen what He has done in your life. You have heard the promises of His Word. And at the very same time, woven through all of those experiences, each and every one of us has a way right now that we are tempted to worship to treat as ultimate, to make the main thing, the things of this creation, the things of here and now. Things you are tempted by, things you are tempted to despair because of, things you are tempted to live for, paths of destruction that you are considering. All of them can be summed up as forgetting that we were made for more than the creation as it is now. All of it is a matter of being tempted to idols. To worship this life instead of worshiping the Creator. Well, we have gathered together this Lord's Day, knowing that is our story, and knowing that we need what God does for us on the Lord's Day to protect us from that, to warn us of that, to encourage us, to strengthen us in the midst of that. And that is exactly what Genesis 2 does for us. What I want us to see this morning, we're going to be going fairly deep at points, There's going to be places where I'm going to be listing details in the text that I think are really cool and interesting, and you're going to be tempted to lose sight of what the point is. And so I want to give you up front, with what I hope is absolute clarity, here is the point the entire time. Creation itself points forward to more than itself. The creation itself points to a future that God intended from the very beginning. Creation itself, here in chapter 2, please remember, I'm afraid I'm going to forget to remind you of this. Remember this the whole time this morning. This is before sin. This is before anything was broken. This was before the curse, before death has invaded, before the fall into sin. Creation was full of promises of a future. And God's people were meant to be living toward that future. What is so powerful about this is we know we need that message because of sin, because of the curse, because of death, sickness, our brokenness. Right now, when, I, when I'm saying that we need the message that there is a future that God has promised, many of us right now, we're delighting in that. Yes, I need to be reminded of that. But what is so glorious is that was always the case even before sin. That the things of this creation were pointers to the more that we were made for and that we were always made for. We're going to see this in three parts this morning from Genesis chapter 2. First, the purpose of life. Second, the foundation of marriage. And then third, the promise of the future. All three of those being a matter of creation itself pointing to more. First, the purpose of life. Now, that's probably, you know... Obviously, the way that is phrased, that's one of the biggest questions possible that could be raised. What is the purpose? What is the meaning of life? And if we're going to be uh, answering that question from this text, that means that there's lots of other questions we're not going to be focusing on. And so just like last week, I want to acknowledge up front, there are all sorts of interesting questions that arise from the text. How chapter 2 fits with chapter 1. Many of those are very useful and valuable questions. I'd be happy to talk about them later. Many of them we're not talking about now, and that is purposeful. I want us to hear what this text as a whole proclaims to us, and that is proclaiming to us as human beings what our purpose is. Genesis 2, beginning at verse 5, we have a zoomed-in description, more detail about the creation of the first human beings. And in the telling of the story of the creation of the first human beings, we have a description of the garden in Eden. That is very much the the center of this story. What is happening? That God places a garden in Eden, and he places the first humans in that garden to care for it and tend it. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Perhaps the most important phrase to hear the exciting stuff that is going on in the description of Eden is that language of verse 8 God planted a garden in Eden. This is the part that I think most, maybe all of us, skip over. We say the Garden of Eden, also a biblical way of speaking, that will be the phrase later, and we think Eden and the garden are the same thing, but they are not. Eden is the bigger region. The garden is in Eden. And there are clues in this text that tell us we're actually meant to picture that geography more specifically. We are told, verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Now, this may feel obvious to some of you, but we have to get all of us on the same page what we should be picturing. If a water flows out of Eden through the garden... What does this tell us about the geography of where Eden is? Well, there must be something that is not the garden that is higher than the garden. Right? You know, rivers flow downhill, a pretty basic point. And so the idea of, of a river flowing out of Eden through the garden, meaning you picture the garden somewhere where there is something up higher that the river is flowing from. Eden is, the garden is then pictured as being on the side of a mountain. And from the garden, you could look up to something higher. Now, if there's something we know in, very clear in the imagery of the Old Testament that is constantly the case, that is that mountains are the imagery of where God is. You go up on the mountain to meet with God. And so the garden is pictured as being planted up on the mountain, right where God is. So many more details. I want to give you the summary, remind us of what the point here is. The purpose of life... We were made to dwell in God's presence. We were made as human beings to be in the presence of our creator and to enjoy the presence of our creator, to enjoy that fellowship with him, community with him, being with him in the creation. And all the imagery of Eden proclaims this. Another clue that this is the case, that is that the tabernacle later on in the story after sin invades was designed in a way that echoes the garden. You'll remember the entrance to the tabernacle always faces east. Well, we're going to find out in Genesis 3, the entrance to the garden was to the east. The tabernacle was laid out in such a way that there was a place where the priests did all of their work, and there was a place further in where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God was dwelling, much like the structure of the garden being in Eden, but to the side of the high place where God actually was. The tabernacle had imagery of gardens woven into it. The lampstand was like a stylized tree. The laver of water reminding us of the river in Eden. We could go on and on in the ways the tabernacle echoed the garden. Well, what was the point to the tabernacle? That is where God was. God, God, human beings were made to dwell in, to enjoy the presence of our Creator. That was our purpose from the beginning. It is why we exist we could go on with more details about how this is the case. The most important would be that we are told in the book of Hebrews that Moses modeled the tabernacle off of heaven. So now put all of this together, the tabernacle is modeled off of heaven, the tabernacle is laid out like and looks like the garden. The garden was the promise, the presence of God with his human creatures. Let's linger over this point. Last week, we talked much about the goodness of creation. Well, here we want to say in a more focused way that what Genesis 1 and 2 are announcing is the goodness of your humanity, your humanness. And we mentioned this last week. I want to expand upon it here. As a human being... You were created with the purpose, with the meaning, with the calling of enjoying fellowship with your creator. And one of the most important parts of our witness as a Christian church is to announce that good news. That is the reality we wander from in our sin. It's the reality Christ has worked to restore us to. And we exist as the church of Jesus Christ in part to shine the light to every one of our fellow human creatures that you have a purpose. You have meaning. There is a reason you exist that your good creator called you into existence to enjoy fellowship with him. And we ought to be excited eager as a Christian church to have that be a primary part of our witness. Now, do you sense how maybe that's a little bit different than how our witness often comes across? All the whole list of things we're against that we think are bad. We must be known for this, that we are the ones who proclaim to those around us you have purpose. Now, that does confront at the same time so much that is wrong in our world. There are many today, and I was at a funeral recently, actually, where this was said in a very vague, just wanting to sound positive way. You have purpose. Well, but what does purpose imply? It implies a calling, a vocation, something you have been given to do from outside of you. You cannot, at the same time, have purpose that is given to you and want to make up your meaning and your identity however you want on the spot, as though it's a blank slate. You cannot have one without the other. And so as we proclaim to our fellow human beings that you have a purpose given to you by your creator, that means now we must ask, well, then what is that purpose? What has my creator called me to do? Who am I? What about my body, for example, Now he has made me signals to me what my calling is, what my purpose is from my good creator? And so we must testify in this positive way, announcing something that is good. You have purpose and meaning and dignity and a calling. And now you need to ask of your creator, what is that? Now, you know, there's many details we can go into about that. What I want to show us from the text is that that ought to be our posture, what we ought to be known for. You were created for the presence of God. More than that. Now, again, this is something I spoke of last week. But I want to highlight here, because Genesis 2 was focusing on the creation of human beings, now we need to combine two more things. And I want to do this for your encouragement this morning. We've got to combine two more things. We've just said all this glorious stuff. The purpose of human beings is to enjoy and know and delight in the presence of God. In our text this morning, how is that expressed? Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Later on, the creation of Eve is to serve that very same purpose. Adam and Eve together are placed in the garden to work it and keep it. Now, did we just change gears? Did we shift to something else? Not at all. All of this glory of being made for God's presence is expressed in the work of gardening, farming, agriculture. All of this glory of you being made, having dignity and purpose and meaning created in God's image, made for fellowship with Him, is expressed in the task of taking care of a small plot of land. I'm not convinced that we appreciate this like we should. This is the dignity and meaning and purpose of your calling during the week of every season of life, every ordinary circumstance God has placed you in. This is the depth of the goodness of the creation and the goodness of the work that God has given to you. Now, I acknowledged last week, and again, I want to be focusing on it here because Genesis 2 is about the creation of Adam and Eve. All of us have ways in which that is difficult for us. Now, we, we live on the other side of the curse, And we know that we're going to see this next week. One of the main things the curse did is it means the creation doesn't work with us the way it used to. The creation resists our work. And so our work is twisted by the curse. The ordinary things God has given us to do is affected by that. And so as there is the sinfulness of the people we have to work with, there is what many would call our alienation from our labor. And so there's the misery of I'm just making this one little part of something that becomes part of this bigger product and never really get to enjoy the final thing. All of that is true, it's a real kind of suffering, and we must acknowledge that. But sometimes our suffering in our work is not because of that. It's because we have wandered from this scriptural vision of the deep goodness and significance of very ordinary work. Here at this glorious moment of human beings being made for the presence of God, it is to work and keep a garden. Sometimes we must lament and acknowledge the way that work is broken and twisted by the thorns and thistles, by the curse. That is true. Sometimes you must be challenged to think more wisely about the work God has given you. To be sure, there are those around you who look on it as small and insignificant. As I said last week, there are fellow Christians who don't view it as spiritual and meaningful. It really matters that you have a a higher, more spiritual, lofty calling. All of that is true, and you need to think more deeply. Say, God has made me for the very ordinary. It began with the work of working and keeping a garden. I have a hobby. I'm often afraid to share with you my hobbies because I think they sound odd sometimes. But I consider one of my favorite hobbies taking care of sprinklers. My lawn. I enjoy sprinkler repair. Now, there's lots of reasons. I like to have a task where I actually have a concrete result and I did something. I don't get to do that very often, so that is helpful. But there have been times where I have been, you know, working on sprinklers and sprinkler lines in my lawn. And I've thought, this has actually crossed my mind, I'm this weird. I've thought, this is one of the most ancient of human endeavors. Moving water around so that things will grow my human involvement in the creation allowing things to grow and in fact Genesis 2 says from the beginning this is why we were made. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. This is the imagery of the arid climate of ancient Israel, and the imagery of human beings were involved in getting rainwater to where it would be to make things grow. All of our human tasks are connected in some way with this work of having dominion over the creation, caring for it, tending it for God's glory. And I want to encourage you to seek to grow in wisdom, to encourage each other in growing in wisdom, in truly relishing and enjoying how whatever small piece it is God has given you, and it is so often small for each of us, is part of this bigger meaning and dignity and significance of what God has called us to do. You were made for God's presence. And you are living for his glory, before his face, being made for his presence in all of the ordinary things of ordinary life. The purpose of life, the presence of God. Second, we also see in our text the foundation of marriage. The garden is described, Adam is placed in the garden, and then we are told this striking phrase in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. We discover a not good It's interesting because we just had all these summary statements of how good the creation is. Every day had this refrain, then at the end, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There is, however, a not good. And the answer to the not good is not a matter of there was something bad or evil that was corrected. It was a matter of moving toward the future. So remember what I said at the beginning of our time this morning, the message of the text that we're made for something more, This idea of moving toward a future that's embedded here is part of that message. Well, what is the future that at this point in the story was moving toward? It was the creation of the woman. Eve was created as the future, the goal of creation, toward which creation was headed. The result of the creation of Eve in verse 23 is a song. If you have your Bibles open, the ESV you know, indents the words like Hebrew poetry signaling this is a song. And so Adam proclaims, seeing Eve, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And right before they embrace, the scene cuts away. And then we are told, verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Here we have the very foundation announced at creation of the reality and the goodness of marriage and all that is involved in marriage, the relationship, the gift of sex, all the things God has given in companionship to enjoy, all of it is clearly spoken of here and clearly spoken of as grounded in creation. All right, there are a gazillion things we could talk about right now. I have already been mapping out a sermon series I want to do sometime on Genesis 1 and 2. And it will be a whole bunch of sermons, and we will talk about all the details, all the great things we should be discussing here. Here is the point that I want us to hear from Genesis 2 speaking of marriage. Marriage is created by God. Marriage is grounded in creation. It is part of the created order this is my only point. This is what we need to hear from our text. It is part of the created order given by God as a matter of the reality that he called into existence. And there is a plan for it, an order for it, a goodness to it that is embedded in the very nature of reality. Another way we could summarize this one point, marriage is a thing. It's not a construct, it's not our invention, it's not something socially imposed. Marriage is something given by God, grounded in the very order of creation. And that simple point, in a way that we feel like is unique for our time and place, but it's not. There's nothing unique happening right now. It has been the point of human rebellion against God from the very beginning to rebel at precisely the point of sex and marriage and all of these things. There might be unique ways our culture is rebelling, but everyone calm down. Cultures have always rebelled. It's not new. And in a way that confronts all of that, including our own in very particular ways, the scriptures proclaim that marriage is a thing, that it is embedded in the created order. It is a reality God has given. That single point has implications that are innumerable. I want to give you some of them. Congregation of Christ, this must be at the foundation of how we witness to the world. This must be at the foundation of how we represent the gospel and the scriptures and the wisdom of God to the world. That marriage is a creation institution, something God made from the beginning. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, too often, our way of debating with the world is way too weak. We make it simply a matter of rules, of worldviews, of ideas about the world, of different rules we either choose to follow or not. And we argue for following certain sets of rules or different views of marriage. There's that view of marriage, that view of marriage. We have a Christian view of marriage. All of that is far too weak of claims, We're not talking about our view of marriage, a Christian view of marriage. We're not talking about just rules for marriage. We are talking about what it actually is. We are talking about the very nature of reality as God created it. And our tone, our way of speaking must reflect that. And in many ways, that means we need an even deeper, bigger confrontation with the rebellion of human hearts. But that way of speaking also does something else. It helps us as Christians, like, seriously, chill out. Okay? Our culture's rebellion against marriage and sexuality and all of these things, it's okay. Cultures have done this forever and ever. You can't argue with reality. Marriage is not a a rule that, like, if we don't think the rule thoughts anymore, it's going to disappear or something. It is the very nature of the created order. It is embedded in reality itself, and no culture can rebel against reality for very long without it descending into chaos, without without reality... proving itself to be present, proving itself to be what it is. And Christians, of all people, should have the posture of a kind of calm in the midst of such rebellion, because we are not just one worldview among many, feeling all threatened and insecure. We are speaking of the Scripture's orientation to reality itself. And our posture, our way of speaking, must testify to that. This embeddedness of marriage in the created order has other implications. It means we ought to represent the goodness of desiring marriage, the goodness of pursuing marriage, of wanting marriage, and the life of marriage. Now, the scriptures are clear that there are exceptional cases where individuals are given a particular kind of calling that means they are called to singleness. And that is very true, and we must protect that and honor that. But that doesn't mean that if you are not married and you desire marriage, you are being unfaithful to that. It means you're not called to singleness then, and it is perfectly good for you to desire being married. We must speak this way more and more freely and not worry so much about the exceptional cases, though they are so important. The created good of marriage is something we must affirm. There are far too many who give up on, fail to pursue and it's not a matter of a spiritual calling given by God. Rather, it is a matter of laziness. And we need a text like this to challenge us culturally as churches to cultivate a sense of an awareness of the goodness of marriage. How is this flowing from the text? Remember, what's the only point here? Marriage is a thing grounded in the created order. This has implications for your marriage. In a culture like our own that worships the individual and that worships individual choice, individual freedom, individual actualization, that worships individual expression, individual self-design, in a culture like our own that worships all of these things, the individual, marriage is downright bizarre. It is so weird. Now, I've said this to you before, but I've, I've been married quite a few years now. I am a very different person right now than the person who made marriage vows. Stephanie is a very different person than the Stephanie who made marriage vows. This is really strange. If we're worshiping the isolated individual, we say, well, it's all about this vow I made one time. They say, well, now hold on. You are a very different person. I am a very, you, you are changed and yet you are bound to vows made by people very different than yourself. How do you make sense of this? Well, one of the main places we have to go to make sense of it is that it is a created good, ordained by God, designed to work, designed for our flourishing, designed to work well. And the reason that seems so bizarre to us is we have, we have worshipped the individual, an individual choice, an individual expression, and we need Genesis orienting us to the creative reality, just this single simple point, marriage is a thing, created by God, ordained by God, to then encourage us. So brothers and sisters, in your marriage right now, you have something where your differentness with each other, perhaps a differentness realized over time, something you didn't realize whenever it was that you made those vows, makes marriage feel impossible. And your culture right now is preaching at you, that's right, it's impossible. If it doesn't work for you, you know, I mean, get out. Like, do something else, right? Because it's all about your individual expression anyway. When you reach that moment where it seems impossible, one of the main things you need is not a list of rules for marriage, do's and don'ts. What you need is the confidence that it is the good idea of your good creator. That it is embedded in the nature of reality and it is meant to work. And that part of what marriage is meant to be is precisely that kind of pairing through time. That that thing you were up against that makes it seem impossible in the eyes of our culture is part of the whole point to marriage and that your confidence, your hope for it, is that it is a created good. There are so many challenges, struggles, difficulties in the ordinary way of marriage, the ordinary course of things, where the answer, beginning, middle, and end, is simply this confidence. God created it good. God created it for a purpose, and He created it good, and I am confident, therefore, that as I power through the work that God has given, there is fruitfulness to be had, there is good to be had, and that is grounded in again. I'm saying that I've said it a million times, not just a rule set, do's and don'ts. It's grounded in our confidence that this is the very created order of our good Creator. One more implication. One of the things all of this means is that every marriage is incomplete. And every marriage is incomplete, even apart from sin. I want to challenge you with this now. You say, yes, every marriage is incomplete because we sin against each other, and that's miserable. That is absolutely true. Right? So I don't want to downplay that. That comes later, Genesis 3. We're in Genesis 2. Creation made for something more, made for the future. Every marriage is incomplete. Now, there's some ordinary common sense ways this is the case. One of the reasons every marriage is incomplete is the idea that the Garden of Eden was incomplete. Adam and Eve were meant to tend the garden, in a sense to spread the garden, to fill the world with God's image bearers. Likewise, marriage is meant to grow over time. It's meant to evolve over time. It's meant to flourish over time, along the timeline. And so you're at a moment in your marriage where it's difficult because it is incomplete, you know, the incompleteness might not be a sin thing. It might be, it's what marriage is made to be, is growing together along this path over time. There's other ways we could talk about it being incomplete, not because of sin. But the most important is this. Marriage was given at the beginning of creation as one of the main ways that creation pointed forward to a future. And this is our third thing this morning, the promise of the future. Marriage was given here at creation as one of the main ways that the creation pointed forward to a future. The Apostle Paul will later on talk about husband and wife as a picture of Christ and the church. This is something grounded in the very created order that God's purpose from the very beginning of creation was the unity of Christ and his church. And he made marriage what it is to signal that, to point forward to that. Your marriage is not just about you. It is not just about your flourishing in the moment. Our marriages are pointing forward to that something more. And indeed, all of Genesis 2 proclaims this. Adam and Eve are given the prohibition not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to talk about what all that means next week on Genesis 3. But one of the things that meant is that they were in a testing period. Well, one day that testing period would end. They would not be on the edge of that forever. One day, God would bring them to that future. Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, to fill the creation with God's image bearers. One day, that task would be completed. There was a future they were moving toward. When we look at Revelation 21 and 22, the new creation, we find it's not just restoring the garden. It's more than the garden. There is a city coming down from heaven. It is a temple, garden, city. There is not one place where God dwells. We're told in chapter 22, there is no temple. God's glory fills the creation. That there is no darkness. There is no sea. There's all these ways that the new creation is proclaimed as more than, greater than, better than the original creation. And now we are back to where we began. Creation itself has embedded within it The promise of more glory, more that we were made for. And you see, brothers and sisters, I'm afraid that sometimes we think, you know, our struggles with the fleeting character of life and awareness of that, different seasons of life, are simply a matter of because of sin. But one of the things our sin does is it tempts us to forget that we were always made for a future, even apart from sin. We were always made for living toward the presence of God, even apart from sin entering the world. And we need the reminder of a text like this to point us to that. The new creation has the tree of life. It has a river flowing from God's presence, just like the river flowing from the mountain to the side of Eden, flowing through the city, just like it flowed through the garden of Eden. But all of it is echoing Eden, but greater than Eden. And that future is what you are living toward. You say, well, actually, there's a, a, a bit of a you know, hiccup in the story coming. Genesis 3, the fall, sin, the curse, all of that. Yes. And our Lord Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, was faithful where Adam was unfaithful to then bring us the future that creation always promised. In fact, there are some theologians who have argued that even if Adam and Eve had not fallen, there still would have needed to be an incarnation. Someone had to fight the dragon who was there. There still would have needed to be an incarnation to bring the creation to that future fulfillment. Now, that's speculation. We don't know the best way to talk about that. But the point that is clear within that, creation was made for more. Congregation of Christ, you are living toward that more toward that glory of the new creation to come. Every moment of your life has its meaning and purpose because you were made for God's presence in his creation and because you were made for that future glory of his presence when his glory would fill the creation. And that's not just saying, I want you to hear this more deeply than just saying, yes, there's sin and things are messed up and so you need to escape the creation and get to that future. Say, no, 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 no. You were always made for this, that that, that creation was made for this, that it had embedded within it from the beginning the purpose of God's glory filling it. And your life is aimed at that. This is proclaimed for your comfort. How many of us right now, loads of us, have stuff right now that's miserable? Miserable in deep ways, our physical brokenness, relationship brokenness, in very everyday life ways, right? We would be embarrassed to say them because they're going to sound small to others. For all of that and everything in between, you need the announcement that the world will one day be greater than it is now and that you are not living for these things, that those things that slip through your fingers in a way that's frightening are reminders that you were never living for those things in the first place. It's for your comfort. It's also a warning. You hear the warning. If you try to take one of those things and make it the thing you are living for, you will destroy it. This is true for your marriage, by the way. We can situate that right in that very same point. If you try to make your marriage ultimate fulfillment, ultimate satisfaction, the main thing, you will destroy it. It cannot bear that burden. And so the promise of the future warns us against living for the now. But now let us be very careful. It is a future that vindicates the now, that infuses the now with meaning. It is the future that means what you are doing now has purpose and significance because it is moving toward that. It is an expression of that. It is the experience of God's presence now that you were made for Remember, there's so many at this point who would say, oh, that's right, because we hope to go to heaven one day and escape creation. I don't know. What were you made for? To work and to keep the garden. The new creation is the announcement of God vindicating that, setting all of that right. It will be greater than it was originally created, but never a rejection of it. And so what the scriptures give us then is a way of looking to the future that affirms the meaning and the goodness of the now. All of this, brothers and sisters, is what our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for you by his death and resurrection, the promise of the future. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask you by your Spirit to help us to ever and always be living toward the future that you have secured for us in Christ. And give us the enjoyment of joy of therefore living before your face in all of life. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.